0: No one comes to the Father but through him. And this is why the gospel is the good news. Death no longer has any power over Jesus. Death no longer has any power over you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're believing for anything else from God, you're believing for small small stuff. Today. Can we just pray together, can you repeat after me, say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to speak to my life, that you administer to my heart. I pray that your word would be revealed to me today, so that I may understand it, so I can speak it and do it, and see it change my life. Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. We're continuing with our short series, the marks the marks of a, a true Christian, and the number one mark is love. And uh, we've been going now for a few weeks, and we stopped just for Tomorrowland, and then the week before that, obviously Vic preached. But um, we're getting back to that, and it's part three of a sermon called Love and Mercy. And I want you to realize that the first mark of a Christian is love. I want you to think about what that means. We spoke before about the fact that where there is no mercy, there is no love. We spoke before about the fact that um, without love, the world has a big problem because God is love. If love is absent then it means God is absent. And when God is absent, there's a mess. Now, I want you to think about within this context, I want you to think about words. These, this little four-letter word, which the word word talks about all the words that we use. You know, you get a whole lot of letters of the alphabet together, and together they make up a word. And I want you to think about this little thing called Words. Because words are incredibly powerful. Words are the most powerful things in the universe. Because unless you believe what's being taught in the academic institutions of the world, the universe, that verse there, is a few words. In other words, everything was created by words. And you were created in the image of God. So you were created with the ability to speak words. Your words have power. The word of God has power. And then I want you to think about some of the words that most Christians would start their sentences with. And this becomes challenging when we start thinking about love and mercy. They'll start with the words, I want to. Now... If you're born again, if you've given your life to Jesus, it's never about what you want. And the, the challenge comes in that's not necessarily a popular thing to say, but God is saying to you, what is what you want God to do with it? Jesus himself said, and I want you to listen very carefully, and if you, you'll find it in the, in, the, in the Bible if you look for it, He said, sometimes you can please God and you can please yourself. Sometimes what you want to do is what God wants you to do. Hallelujah. But then there's other times when Jesus said, you cannot fulfill the will of God without denying yourself. Now, if everything's about, I want to dot, 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 then what about those times when God's will is opposite to what you want? Or, this is such an opportunity. Dot, dot, dot. Many opportunities come from the devil. I have to take that new job. Why? It's such an opportunity. You know, I have to go to this XYZ conference because I'm going to meet so-and-so. So it's such an opportunity. You know, if I go over there, I'm going to have an opportunity to meet King Charles III from the UK. It's such an opportunity. I want you to realize opportunity means nothing in the economy of God. All the words, there's a spiritual version. The spiritual version of this is God told me, and what I want you to realize, if you're telling the world that God told you, how does everyone else around you know that God told you? And the reality is, Christians go around and they frivolously say, God told me. I mean, many times I've sat down with Christian musicians who have told me this album that they produced is God breathed, and the word of God, the Bible is God breathed, who says your little song is God breathed? Just because I've got some Christian lyrics doesn't mean it's God-breathed. God told me is the most abused state- statement in all of Christendom. So many Christians say God told me when God said nothing. The, the first thing is I'm telling you now, you've got a verse to back you up if God told you. Or another abuse statement in Christendom, I'm sure it will be a right if dot dot dot. I'm sure it'll be okay if... Dot, dot, dot. And I'm saying this because when we hear ourselves saying those words, we, we've got to sit down and start thinking, am I really in the, in the will of God? Or the words, I'm sure that'll do. Yesterday I was involved in doing a wedding. And you know, everyone when they do their weddings, there's, there's one thing I see with all of them today. And I was telling some of the guys, the leaders this morning... These days, everyone wants to put on a show. I've seen so many wedding shows, and everyone thinks their wedding's the best. So yesterday, what happened? These guys came in with a, these buckets, and on the bucket, it said, light." and they came in there, and, and the, the groomsmen and that, they come in there with these buckets, and they start handing out alcohol to all the guests there. I just kept having to put, because I don't drink. You understand what I'm saying? So I just had to keep putting these things across. You understand? Without trying to, like, you know, you don't want to make a scene, and, like just, no, no, don't worry, no, 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 you, you no, 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 seriously, no, I'm a kind guy, you, you, no, no, I put myself lost, you know what I'm saying? Just. And the thing is, at the end of the day, they thought, "Now this is the best." And I mean, the groomsmen couldn't hide their smiles after that. They thought this was just such a cool thing. No one's ever done this at a wedding before. And that's what the world is all about. The world doesn't understand the power of words and the, the world is all about making a show. I, I can't tell you how many Christians told me they'll never take the vaccine. And they were first in line. Some didn't even gypped out the queue. <laughs> I can't tell you how many Christians have been big mouths and they've told me these gigantic stories about how they tithe. When your words are laced with I want, or when your I want is all over the place, the question you need to ask yourself is, when does your I want become a sin? At what point does it it cross over? I mean, I I want you to think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And and I want you to think about the fruit. Everyone talks about the apple. And think about what I'm preaching the sermon of. Do you, do you think that that apple sign was put there by accident? Do you think old Stevie Jobs and, and the other that he started with, I can't remember the oak's name, his name escapes me, but when they started apple, do you think that this wasn't something to do with the Garden of Eden? I remember in the 1980s, there was a music channel, and it was like the new in thing. It was called MTV. And literally, they had this little cartoon thing, and... Um, <laughs> You had this worm and you had this half eaten apple and it was obvious it was a plant in the Garden of Eden. And come to MTV because this is where we really eat the fruit. eh? We really eat the apple, yeah. And you know what the strangest thing of all is? The Bible doesn't say Adam and Eve ate the apple. In fact, it comes from Snow White. The reason you think it's an apple is because of Snow White, because of Walt Disney. The Bible just says it was fruit. The Bible doesn't even tell you what fruit it was. It doesn't tell us what it looked like. And, and let me tell you something else. Something else that people think is that fruit was poisonous. That comes from Snow White as well. It wasn't poisonous. It was just a tree that was placed, placed there. It was fruit that looked good. It was fruit that would have tasted good. That's what the Bible says. It was good, good fruit. There's nothing wrong with the fruit. The issue was that It was a test of obedience to God. God had said, don't eat it. And the problem comes in, the greatest crisis in the world comes in, in that people go their own way. They do their own thing. They make up their own rules. They live by their own rules that they don't keep, by the way. And they don't look at the word of God, the Bible, because at the end of the day, everything you know that doesn't come from the Bible is a lie. And you're making decisions on that every single day. And how many of your opinions are you testing against the Bible? And this is what I want to say to you today. If, if God's word, the Bible itself, not someone else's writing a book or a video or a TV program or a preacher. If the Bible doesn't challenge you every single day, you're not reading it. Because I'm telling you now, if you read the Bible every single day, the Bible will hit you every single day with something that needs to change. Some attitude, some thought, some thinking pattern, something. And because of this, the greatest crisis in the world is that the world is void of love that only comes through Christ. And and that's why the sermon is based on Romans 12 verse 10 starting at verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving reference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Now, I just want you to think about how the world thinks. At verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints. Now, Everyone's happy with the church distributing to the needs of the saints until it comes to the church distributing to the needs of the pastor. And many people in church would even have an issue with it. I mean, right now it's very popular to give to the poor. And the church should give to the poor. But the Bible doesn't just stop at the poor, ministering to the needs of the saints, all the saints, including the pastor, or is he not one of the saints? Now, love requires work. It takes you not lagging, it takes diligence, and a few weeks ago I read out the active church story about a vision for the church, but what I want you to realize, for the active church story to take hold, it requires that we become fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Listen to the NLT of Romans 12 starting at verse 10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. In verse 11, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. So, the church that changes the nation works hard to serve the Lord enthusiastically. Now, The first place that we have to work hard to serve the Lord enthusiastically is being like God. And the first place God wants us to be like God is to forgive. And I know one or two people who know where I'm going now are are saying, why is this pastor swearing at us? Yeah, you need to forgive that person that sexually abused you. Yeah, you need to forgive that man that raped you. Yeah, you need to forgive that person who stole from you. Yes, you need to forgive that person who spoke behind your back. God forgave you, and you haven't forgiven that person who spoke behind your back, but how many people's backs have you spoken behind? And here's the big issue. Forgiveness comes out of mercy and love. When, when our lives are defined by mercy and love, when we have that mark as a Christian, forgiveness comes out of our lives. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 says this. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Come on, say amen someone. By grace you have been saved. God is rich in mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us... Even we were dead in our trespasses. So even when we were using the name of Jesus as a swear word, even when we didn't care about what God said, even when we were the most despicable people, even when our motives were so rotten, even when, you know, if people really found out what we were like, they would hate our guts. Even when we were as terrible as can be, God loved us. This God who was rich in mercy, His His love was overflowing to us. He loved us with everything that He had. So much so, that he made us alive together with Christ who got beaten to a pulp and died the worst of deaths. That's how much he loved us. And forgiveness flows out of mercy. If you have no mercy, you will not forgive. Forgiveness flows out of mercy and mercy flows out of love. Just as mercy is more than forgiveness, love is is more than mercy you see love is at the top the forgiveness and the mercy come out of love the father loves the son and the son loves the father but here's the big thing about the son and the father they are both without sin and they don't need mercy you do realize Jesus doesn't need mercy. You do realize God the Father doesn't need mercy. In heaven, we too will, will be without sin and without need, and yet God will still love us. We don't love people because of mercy. Love doesn't need mercy. We need mercy, but love doesn't need mercy. Mercy acts because of need. Love acts because of affection. And love acts because of affection whether there's a need or not. Mercy operates in times of crisis, in times of need. Love is constant. Irrespective of a crisis, irrespective of a need. There can be no true mercy apart from love. But mercy is only one aspect of love. Mercy doesn't define love. It's part of love, but it doesn't define love. And so I'm not going to go into all the aspects of love today, but I do want to start talking about the relationship between mercy and grace. You may have heard of the word grace. You know, as Christians, we say grace when we have a meal. Mercy is related to grace, which flows out of love, just as forgiveness flows out of mercy. I want you to start understanding that in the church we've got to start understanding these two things. And in each of his three epistles, the Apostle Paul starts with the words grace, mercy, and peace. You can see it in one Timothy 1, two 1 Timothy uh, two Timothy one two, and Titus one verse four. I'm just going to read one of them Um, from Titus 1 verse 4. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what is Paul saying when he speaks about grace, mercy, and peace? And I said to you earlier, words are powerful. When you say to a person, grace, mercy, and peace, what exactly are you saying to them? Grace and mercy have a close relationship, yet they're different. Mercy has to do with pain, misery, and distress. Mercy has to do with the consequences of sin. Whether it's because of our individual sins or because of a sinful world in which we live, all of our problems at the end of the day are sin problems. I want you all to look at me. Do you realize that every problem that you have is a sin problem? Do you realize there isn't a problem that you have That is not a sin problem. All problems come out of sin. And when these problems come, when a sin problem comes, what does mercy do? Mercy is like the ambulance that comes around and gives help. So when you think of mercy, you think, "Bee, ba, be boy," you know the accident comes, maybe be an accident, and the ambulance comes to take you to the hospital. That's mercy. Mercy's there when all hell is broken loose. Grace, on the other hand, doesn't deal with the problem of sin, it deals with sin itself. Mercy deals with the symptoms. Grace deals with the cause, the root of it. Mercy offers relief from punishment, the consequence. Grace offers a pardon from the crime. When you're pardoned of the crime, you're no longer guilty of the crime. Mercy just alleviates your punishment a little bit. Mercy eliminates the pain, grace cures the disease. Mercy regulates to the negative grace, so mercy relates to the negative grace relates to the positive. In relation to salvation, mercy says no hell, whereas grace says heaven. Mercy says I pity you. I give you mercy. I give you mercy. You know what I mean? I can come to like you guys here. I give you mercy. (laughs) I've given you mercy. Yeah, you owe me. Yes. Yeah. your head, say yes, I owe you because I gave you mercy. I'm now better than you. Grace doesn't do that. Grace says, I pardon you. So the next time I come and I speak to you and we're chatting and this you did this thing wrong, what does Grace say? What are you talking about? I don't remember that. You're saying, no, you, I did that. I say, I don't remember that. Pardon forgets. You know, if you receive a presidential pardon, the president's saying it's as if you never did that. But then there's also a relationship between mercy and justice. Now, justice is a part we want when it's someone else has done it, but it's a thing we don't want when it's us who've done it. Mercy is connected to justice, although they seem to be incomparable. Here's what justice is. Justice gives someone exactly what they deserve, whereas mercy gives less punishment and more help than is deserved. So, so mercy can only operate where there's Justice. It is difficult for some people to understand how God can be both just and merciful at the same time to the same person. If God were completely just, how could he not punish sin totally? If God is merciful, does that not contradict his justice? You know, this is the biggest problem Muslims have with their faith. Muslims say that God is merciful, but he's also just. And he can't be both merciful and just. Because if he's perfectly just, every sin has to be punished. Many people don't get this. And the truth is, God does not show mercy without pardoning sin. For God to offer mercy without punishment would violate his justice. Now, something that people don't understand in the church today, and that is the fact that mercy that ignores sin is a false mercy. I want to say that again. Mercy that ignores sin is a false mercy. A false false mercy shows no mercy and it shows no justice. And people in South Africa are very frustrated by false mercy because they're saying Surah Ramaphosa hasn't put any people in prison that are guilty of corruption when he promised he would. YouTube is full of videos like that. So when it's us that are guilty, then we like this false mercy. But when someone else is guilty and their guilty is hurting us, we don't like this false mercy. And, and this, is, this is a big challenge for us. Because it's that sort of false mercy that David showed to his rebellious and wicked son Absalom when he was young. King David showed him a false mercy and the next thing Absalom tried to take him out. False mercy always comes back to bite you. Because David did not deal with Absalom's sin, his attitude towards his son was unrighteous sentimentality. Which is not mercy and it ignores justice. And what did it do? It endorsed and it sanctioned Absalom's sin. False mercy is common in our day. People say that, and I want you to listen very carefully. People say you're being unloving and unkind to all people responsible for their sins. I want to tell you that this is cheap grace. It's not just, and it's not merciful. Why? Because it overlooks sin, it leaves sin undealt with, and trusting in that type of false mercy leaves you in your sin. To abandon justice is to abandon mercy. To overlook sin is to reject truth. Mercy and truth are inseparable. They are together, they are tied together. In Psalm 85 verse 10 it says mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. In John 1 verse 14. The glory of the one and only came from the Father overflowing with tender mercy and truth. Jesus came with mercy and truth. When Jesus was speaking to women caught in adultery he didn't say this is not a problem. He dealt with her sin. In every act of true mercy, someone pays the price. I want to say that to you again. In every act of true mercy, when there's real mercy, someone pays the price for that sin. Someone pays the price. And that's why we shouldn't be frivolous about sin. We shouldn't be frivolous about how we use our words. I want you to go and have a look sometime, if you can, at the story of the the 12 spies that Moses sent into the promised land. Two of them came back with a message that says, we trust God. We have our faith in God. He's going to deliver this nation to us. Ten of the twelve spies says, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And do you know the way we saw them and the way we saw them looking at us? We believe they saw us too. Here's the problem with sin. It always makes you small. It always makes you look like you're a grasshopper to yourself. And you think that everyone around you looks at you like you're a grasshopper. You think I need a job. I can never ever build something up myself because you know what? I'm too useless. Someone else has to pay me. I have to make, I I can't make it happen. Someone else must make it happen. This is why many people don't want to take responsibility for anything. This is why we have a problem in that there's so many poor people and they go burn stuff rather than build stuff because at the end of the day, someone else needs to solve their problem. Now, God has given you everything you need to solve your problem. But if there's, if there's no justice, if there's no real dealing with sin... Then at the end of the day, how do you overcome that? You know, even Alcoholics Anonymous says, if an alcoholic wants to overcome alcoholism, the first thing is they've got to admit where they stand. They've got to admit who they are. They've got to admit that they need a change. I want to tell you, they don't go all the way, though. Because they teach these people to say for the rest of their lives, I'm an alcoholic, I'm just one drink away from falling again. No, no, Jesus delivers you. But if you don't recognize sin, then what does Jesus deliver you from? I want to tell you that you invalidate the gospel. You make the gospel of no effect. You're saying that what Jesus did on the cross for you is useless if you don't deal with the problem of sin. God paid the price for our sin. He did this through Jesus. And then he says, now as I've done for you, you do for others. This is why the Bible says we have no right to hold issues against people. We have no right to keep talking about what they did to us. We have no right over and over again to visit these things in our mind and to picture how the justice comes to them. Because none of us want to face the justice we deserve. And here's the thing. God says, the first thing you can do to be like Him is to forgive. And He forgave you when you didn't want it. Maybe you're sitting in church today and you still don't even want it. You couldn't be bothered with the forgiveness of God. Jesus still died for you, even if you're thinking like that today. Jesus still died for you. To be merciful is to absorb the affliction for someone else, to carry the weight and to cover their debt. And I'm going to continue with this next week. But talking about the fact that God has called us to repentance. And you know how Pastor Burt says? I'm going to quote him word for word. To expect to enter the circle of God's mercy without repenting from our sin is but wishful thinking. He goes on, he says even further this. God's mercy apart from repentance from sin is a false gospel. And the problem is that if you're believing a false gospel which doesn't deal with the sin, doesn't deal with the fact that the blood of Jesus washes it away, doesn't deal with the fact that I need to cry out and beg Jesus to save me, I need to give my heart to Him. I need to give my life to Him. I need to tell Him, Lord, I'm, I'm no longer the Lord of my life. You're the Lord of my life. Which means I cannot talk about what I want. I need to first find out what He wants. And and let me just give you a silly example. Because I never forget the one time a preacher talking about someone that was in his church, a pastor, and the guy was having an affair. And so I sat down with this guy, and the guy said, "Now I want to be with this other person. I married the wrong person in the first person place. This person is my soulmate. They were watching too many movies." You notice how many times in movies, people are married and then they meet their soulmate and it's all happy because the other person also realized, now I'm not, you know, and uh, they split off. You know, sometimes it happens before the wedding, sometimes it's after the wedding, but who cares? As long as you meet your soulmate, because when you meet your soulmate, everything's okay, but every person you fall in love with is your soulmate when you meet them, until you find out what they really like and they find out what you really like. Soul what? I, I like to say that it becomes a soul great, You know, they start grating you because now you find out what they really like. Oh, I'm so lonely. If only I could get my soulmate. Then you get them. Then you want out. That's what happens. I wish I could be married. I wish I could be married. Then they get married. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm trapped. I can't believe I, I, I married Satan. Surely the Lord must give me a way out of this. No, he doesn't no it doesn't you, you, you made the covenant for better for worse that's what it says for better for worse you're now one flesh the fact that this arm doesn't like this arm means nothing cut this arm off and what's going to happen to you that's what happens in a divorce you see people say I want and then they put it on God I sat down more than once with guys that are that are preachers now God doesn't want me to be unhappy what Bible are you reading? if you're married and you're unhappy he says either fix the marriage or be unhappy then I want you to be unhappy yes God wants you to be unhappy in your marriage if you don't fix it if you don't do what he told you to do in the marriage he wants you to be unhappy and because he wants you to stay in that marriage sometimes God makes you unhappy to, to get you to do his will this thing that God wants you to be happy is talk You show me where this says in the Bible, Jesus died so that you can be happy. Any one of you can come and show me that. He died so that you could be saved from hell. Believe me, you will be happy forever if you get into heaven. When you realize what you are saved from, and you should already realize what you're saved from, because already the Bible tells you where you'll end up if you die without Jesus. This is the be all and the end all of everything. After altar call, we're going to be doing a baptism. I, wa- I want you to realize, when someone gets baptized and they raised to new life in Christ Jesus, please understand what they're saved from. Please go read; it says so in the Bible. Jesus even told a parable about a man named Lazarus and a rich man who ended up in the fires of hell. And all he wanted, you know, all that all that rich man wanted when he's in hell, and he was living in the lap of com- comfort. Was for Lazarus who was in Abraham's bosom to take one drop, just one drop, and 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 I'm gonna just pour drop. This is all he wanted. Can he just have that? In fact, that's too much. He wanted him to take his finger, dip it in that water, and come and put it on his tongue. That's all he couldn't even have that. Jesus spoke about how many times? He spoke about there will be weeping. So when do you weep? And gnashing of teeth. When do you gnash your teeth? When you're in pain. This is gnashing of teeth. Imagine now someone's cutting something out here without anesthetic. That's gnashing. That's what you've been saved from. That's the grace of God. And how can he do that and there's still justice? Because all of your sin was piled onto the head of Jesus, onto the back of Jesus, onto the arms of Jesus, onto the heart of Jesus, onto the spleen of Jesus, onto the large and the small intestines of Jesus, onto the stomach of Jesus, onto the lungs of Jesus, onto the legs of Jesus, onto the knees of Jesus, onto the feet of Jesus. Every part of Jesus, all of our sin went onto him. He was punished. The wrath of God fell on him for all of our sin. And then he says, right, now if you make Jesus, who took all of your sin, and he himself had never sinned, that's why he's able to take your sin. If you put your faith in him, if you give your heart to him, if you give your life to him, and if you allow him to give the Holy Spirit, and you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you every single day, every step of the way, and you follow my word. You follow my word. My word. My word. You follow my word. You follow this. <clears throat> you base your life on this. Because the Bible also says Jesus is the word, which means he is the Bible. And you base everything on this. Then your sin is transferred onto Jesus on the cross. what does it mean when you say Jesus is my Lord I remember God telling me years ago Jesus is either Lord of all or is not Lord at all